Let's begin just by reading God's word together. In Mark chapter 1, and we'll be studying verses 35 through 45 this morning. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place where there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. This is the word of our God, church. So Jesus had worked pretty hard the previous day. If you remember last week's message or You just know from your own study of Mark chapter 1, if you even want to glance back right now and look at what happened before verse 35, you know that the day prior to this, this passage that we're going to study this morning, had been pretty full. The day prior to this, he had been teaching in the synagogue, he had casted out demons, he was healing many people of sickness, it was a very full long, I'm sure, tiring day for Jesus. All of us probably know that exhausted feeling after having worked a long and hard day. If you can relate to that, let me see your hand real quick. A hard day's work. And and even if you love what you do, like I do, I absolutely love being a pastor. I, I love working in the community with the work that I do through Operation Transformation. I feel very blessed to do what God has called me to do. But even if you love what you do and you feel good about what you've accomplished on a day like that, where you've worked hard and you've worked long hours and you feel productive and you're even firing on all cylinders, as I like to say, and things are happening and you're moving forward, you still feel that tired, uh, exhausted feeling. And sometimes you can feel not only physically spent, but emotionally spent as well. So I say all that to say that can I confess to you that when I have a day like that, like the type of day Jesus had the day before this, I love to sleep in just a little bit the very next day. Anybody else here with me this morning? 
I, I mean, it doesn't even, like, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a psychological for, thing for me. It doesn't even have to be that much longer than normal. I just don't want to set the alarm. If I've had a, a long, good day, but I'm physically and emotionally spent from the day, I love to be able to go to bed and not reach over and set the alarm for the next morning. It, it's psychological. It, it probably only means I'm going to sleep 20, 30 more minutes than I would have normally otherwise, but that's what I absolutely love to do. Well, what did Jesus do after his long and hard day? Get ready to feel convicted like I did this week studying this passage. What does Jesus do after his long and hard day? Let's go back to verse 35. And rising very early. Mark, did you have to put the adverb in there too? Not only early, rising very early. No, no. In the morning, and what does he say? While it was still dark. I don't want to be too gross here, but sometimes I get up while it's still dark. Then I go use the bathroom, and then I go back to sleep. That's what you do when it's still dark. It was still dark, and Mark records for us here that Jesus rising very early after this long and exhausting day, and it's still dark. And what does he do? In verse 35, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. I'm going to just be honest with you, church. This week, in studying this passage, actually, I usually work about three weeks ahead, so I've been meditating on these verses for the last three weeks. And in over the last few weeks, I have felt very, very convicted by our Lord's example here. Now, I want to be clear on this because there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong. There's absolutely nothing wrong with getting a good night's sleep. Getting a good night's sleep is a good thing, and, and it's something that we should be very thankful for when it happens. And you know what I'm talking about. When you fall asleep and you get like a solid six, seven, eight hours, and I mean, that's just a, a beautiful thing. Praise God for good sleep, amen? <laughs> but maybe, maybe our souls would be better cared for. Maybe our souls would be better cared for if we exchanged an hour of sleep for an hour of prayer. See, here's the thing that I've felt convicted about in looking at this first and last few weeks. If, if Jesus, the Son of God, knew that he needed personal time with his heavenly Father, how much more so do we need to make this a priority, to seek our heavenly Father for his guidance and strength for the day, and to do this in prayer. Well, in verse 36, all of that is ruined. <laughs> Christ's plan for how to spend that time is ruined, and here's why. We see that Jesus is missed by his followers. Mark records for us here and says, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. It seems that the disciples were awakened early that morning as well. Remember, the events of the day before largely took place 
in two locations, the synagogue in Capernaum, and then they just went right out the door. And again, I shared with you last week, this is amazing, but biblical archaeologists believe they know where both of these things were in Capernaum. They walked out the door to the synagogue and walked down the road and into Peter's house. And so these events of this day, this very busy day, happened in those two locations. And so they spend the night in Peter's house. And in the morning, Jesus is gone and the disciples wake up and there's an enormous crowd of people outside of Peter's door clamoring and wanting more. They want more from Jesus. They want more miracles. They want to see more miracles. But there's a problem. The miracle worker is missing. Jesus isn't there. And so Peter and the others, as the text tells us, they go looking for him. Now, I just want to show you this in the Greek real quick. The Greek verb here that's used that, at least in the English Standard Version that I'm looking at, is translated searched for him, is the Greek verb katadioxin. Katadioxin has a very strong tone to it. It literally means to pursue, to search for eagerly. It means to hunt. Do we have hunters in the room? This verb in the Greek means to hunt. The disciples went hunting for Jesus. They pursued him. And likewise, I, I will say also that we cannot be sure of the tone in which the statement that they make to him when they find him. We can't be sure of the tone of that because we, we're not hearing it, we're reading it, but it's very possible that they are rebuking him here. That when they find Jesus off by himself in a desolate place all alone, that their initial response is, what are you doing? Jesus, where have you been? Jesus, the crowd wants more. There's so many people who want you to perform more miracles. Jesus, you're, you're not where you're supposed to be, and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Kind of seems like the disciples might even be a little bit ticked off here. And Jesus' response probably confuses them even more as we look at verse 38. How does he respond to them? He says, and he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus is saying, listen, we're done in Capernaum for now. What the crowd wants is not what I came to do. And so we're leaving Capernaum, the big city, and we're going to hit all these other towns in the area where I can preach. Simon Peter and the others what we need to know at this point in the story, and this is going to continue for quite some time, actually, up through the crucifixion and the resurrection, Simon Peter and the other boys don't quite get the mission yet. Jesus' priorities are different. He wasn't looking for popularity among the masses. He had a mission to complete. Well, look back at verse um, if, you, if you were to look back at verse 15 in chapter 1, you see that Jesus was looking for people who would respond to the good news of the kingdom that he was preaching with repentance and with belief. That is why he came. He makes it crystal clear for us in chapter 1, verse 15. 
And this crowd wants something altogether different. It really comes down to the question that we should ask of why did Jesus perform miracles? What was the purpose of the miracles that Christ performed? Certainly, and we need to acknowledge this and and, and make much of this actually, but he cast out demons and he healed people so that the lives of the people that he helped would be better on earth. He certainly, in casting, uh, I'll just pick on Mary Magdalene, casting the, the demons that lived within her, casting them out of her, gave her a much better quality of life in the here and now. And we want to acknowledge that. And in, in healing people, and we're about to see in the next few weeks some wonderful healings, he gave people a much better quality of life in the here and now. Uh, he allowed them to get married. He allowed them to work a job. He allowed them to have families. He brought them, in many cases, he brought them back into community and into the spiritual community, and we don't want to forget about that. that. That is a very important reason of why Jesus performed miracles. He did this out of love and out of compassion for people. However, church, he also performed miracles so that people would believe in him. He performed the miracles so, so that when people saw the miracles, they would realize that the kingdom had come that the king had come and that the king was standing before them. But this large crowd that was chasing after him in Capernaum was attracted to Jesus mostly, mostly because of the miracles. They came to be healed themselves, and, and who can blame them for that? And some came just to see a miracle just to see something supernatural happen. They were, if you'll allow me, Jesus fans. Jesus fanatics, even. And so the crowd, as we're going to see this, begins to chase after him for this reason, for primarily for this reason. Dr. Daniel Aiken writes about this, and he says, the call to repent and believe the gospel was not on their spiritual radar. Dr. Aiken is talking about this crowd in Capernaum in his commentary on Mark's gospel. He says, like so many today, don't tune out here, like so many today, they wanted a Jesus of their liking, a Jesus who would perform miracles and fit into their agenda. Ouch. Church, the crowd had expectations of Jesus. Don't miss from what we've studied so far this morning. His disciples had expectations of Jesus. I think it is very fitting for us to ask ourselves, do we have expectations of Jesus? Brothers and sisters, the question I think we need to wrestle with in this passage is, do we want a Jesus of our own design? A, a, a Jesus that conforms to our liking. Defining him by our priorities, our values, our perspectives on issues in life. Instead, see, what's, what's the other option than what I'm talking about right now? Instead of truly 
knowing the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Gospels. The Gospel as well. You'll hear me preach that every Sunday, but in this case, I'm talking about those four Gospels. Instead of truly knowing and meditating on the words of Jesus Christ, truly knowing and meditating on his actions, his ways, so that we might conform our lives to him. Not the other way around. Not a Jesus of my understanding and my liking. Well, of course Christ would feel the same way about this political issue that I feel. Really? Maybe. Maybe not. Do we go to the Gospels? Do we study and meditate on his words, his teaching, his actions, his ways, his manner, his motivations? And and then do we move, lest I be pigeonholed, because I'm certainly not this, someone who believes that we only need the Gospels or that we only need the New Testament, but then we need to move from the Gospels in both directions to the rest of the New Testament and back through all the rest of the Old Testament, all 66 books of the inspired Word of God to truly understand what our God believes and thinks about the issues of the day. Seeking to conform my life to his word. The question is this, who is the rabbi and who is the student? Who is the rabbi and who is the student? Do we want a Jesus that fits our expectations or do we want the Jesus of the Bible? I want the Jesus of the Bible. Amen? So in verse 39, we see Jesus leaves them to preach to other people. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So first century Jewish historian Josephus wrote about this region. This is just a little historical background for you. Flavius Josephus wrote, he lived just a couple decades after all this. He said, the cities lie very thick, and the very many villages that are here are everywhere, so full of people because of the richness of their soil that their very least of them contained more than 15,000 inhabitants. I don't know what image sometimes we have in our minds about these cities and villages in ancient Israel, but they were big. Flavius Josephus, who lived during this time period, by the way, not a Christian, a Jewish historian working for the Roman Empire, who backs up, can I just say as an apologetic for our faith, backs up so much of what's written in the New Testament. But Flavius Josephus writes that that even these small villages that they went to, a lot of them contained 15,000 people. That's half the size of Port Huron. I mean, these these are big villages. These are big cities. Think of the thousands, church, the thousands of people who encountered Jesus as he preached throughout Galilee during this early part of his ministry, working through this whole area, ministering to people, healing, casting out demons, but preaching. He demonstrated his power over the evil, and he proclaimed the need for repentance and for belief for the kingdom of God had come. And then One day during this journey, we don't know how long this lasted, days, weeks, maybe months. 
as he's working through this part of Israel, one day Jesus encounters an outcast of the community. A man walks up to him. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, a lot of you probably know this, but just in case we have anyone new to the faith in here, I want to just give you some background here. During this time, the word leprosy was used in reference to a wide variety of skin diseases. It wasn't just one specific skin disease, but it included the disease that we still know as leprosy or Hansen's disease today. And to be identified as a leper was a tragic thing during this time. It wrecked your life. It it brought you out of community. It ruined any chance you had of having a normal life. Dr. R.C. Sproul writes about the holistic impact that this disease had on a person. He says, if you were found to have leprosy, you were deemed to be not just unwell but unclean. Leprosy could not be healed in the ancient world, so lepers were cast out of the covenant community. You were not allowed near the temple and could not enter the gates of Jerusalem. You had to live alone without the fellowship of family members and friends. Now, this man approaches Jesus. I want you to understand what a radical and risky action this man takes. When he approaches Jesus, he breaks the law. He breaks the law. He violates every tradition. He violates every cultural norm of the day. And I am quite sure the disciples were coming out of their skin. They were furious that this leper was approaching them. But this man doesn't care. He's, you see, at that point of desperation. He is desperate to have a different life than the one that he has. He wants a new life, and he knows that it's only Jesus that can give it to him. He believes that Jesus has the power to heal him. He comes in faith. And how does Christ respond? This is probably even more radical than how the leper approaches Jesus. It's what Jesus does in response. And Mark tells us in verse 41, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will, I will be clean. Moved with pity. Now, depending on what translation of the Bible you're reading from right now, that's why, you know, just a little commercial break here. That's why I always encourage you guys to bring your own Bible or your phone. You know, I'm not against tech. You know, that's fine. If you, you know, use your phone for your your Bible, that's great. But I always want you, like, reading your own Bible and your own translation because you're going to catch certain things and, and not just believe what I'm saying and what the screen says. Because if you have a different translation than the ESV, you might not have the word pity. Depending on your translation, you might have the word pity or compassion. Well, we can see why those would be translated the same way. It's kind of the same thing, having pity on somebody or having compassion on them. But you might also have the word indignant. You might have the word anger. Now, how does that fit? 
Moved with compassion, moved with anger. I'm no brain surgeon, but I think those are typically two very different things. I moved with compassion on somebody, I moved with anger. <laughs> Usually that's not the same idea that's being conveyed there. Well, there's good reason, and if you're really interested in textural criticism, <laughs> I'm not going to put the rest of you asleep explaining this, but if you're interested, come talk to me about why that range of meaning is there. I won't get into it now. But it seems very obvious from what happens next that Jesus has pity. He has compassion on the man, on the leper. And he lovingly touches him and heals him. But I believe that Jesus is also angry. And he's indignant with the disease itself and the way it was hurting this man in so many ways. You see, earlier the disciples, Mark is doing a little contrast here. It's kind of cool. Earlier the disciples, disciples had been frustrated with Jesus that he wasn't living up to their expectations. And so they're a little frustrated with him. But now we begin to see, and we're going to see a lot more as we study through Mark's gospel, we begin to see what frustrates Jesus. We begin to see what makes Jesus angry. Jesus is angry at how the fall of man, remember that story in Genesis, had stained his creation with sin and with depravity, with sickness, with brokenness, and with death. And so I think here Jesus feels all the compassion in the world and love for this man, and he feels all the anger possible for the sin that had come into the world and, and polluted his creation with sickness. So what does Jesus do in the face of this? He touches him. You see, this is so much more radical than the leper approaching Jesus. Jesus here breaks the law. Jesus breaks the law to touch this man and to give him a new life. When it's a choice between the laws of men and the laws of God, what do we go with, church? Laws of God. When, it, when breaking the law is to do the right thing, we do the right thing. And this is what our Lord does. He sets the example for us here. According to the law, Jesus makes himself ceremonial unclean. According to everyone, his disciples included, the guys who had given up their lives, mind you, always remember this as we're tracking through the gospel, that these guys had done away with businesses and left their families for a time and to follow him. And now they're watching the man that they have put all their chips into that basket. And they're watching him reach out and make himself ceremonial unclean. He joins this leper in breaking every custom and tradition. Why does he do this? Love. He breaks the law because of love. Why does he do this? Because he knows that touching this man will not truly make him unclean. Touching him is the most righteous thing that he can possibly do at this moment. And so Jesus reaches out and touches the leper. Men might view him as unclean 
for breaking this law, but Jesus knows better. What does he know better? That darkness doesn't drive out light. When you're in a lit room, this is common sense, isn't it? When you're in a lit room, you don't walk over to the switch and flip on the darkness. Darkness doesn't drive out light. Light drives out darkness. You walk into a dark room and you flip on the light, don't you? Light drives out darkness. Jesus plays offense. He plays offense. Jesus is the light of the world. He's not afraid of leprosy. Christ is not afraid of leprosy. Dr. Mark Strauss writes about this, and he says, rather than being rendered unclean by touching the man, Jesus radically reverses the direction of purity and brings healing and cleansing from defilement. Jesus has not come to reaffirm the law or to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So what happens to the man? Let's wrap up the story here, and I just have a couple quick points of application for you. Uh, Verse 42, immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And there it is, Mark's favorite word, euthus, immediately. The healing is immediate and it's complete. He's cleansed right there. Jesus touches him, be clean. The leprosy's gone. What does Jesus then say to the man? Look at verse 43. He gives him some instructions that are pretty much ignored. (laughs) And Jesus sternly charged him, sternly charged him. Like, Christ ain't kidding around right now, is what Mark is saying. And he says to him, you know, he sends him away and says, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. Why does he tell him to do this? Because in order to get back into society, in order to be accepted again in the synagogue, he had to show himself to the priest. The priest would say, whoa, what happened to you? No more leprosy. Okay, you're good. You know, box checked, get your vaccination card. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't. Can we delete that from the (laughs) box checked? Sorry, just having a little fun, right? Box checked, go to the priest, get it done. He gives them two instructions here. Don't miss these. Do not tell anyone about what has happened. It's number one. And go to a priest and give the offering that the law commands. So we don't know, actually, if he went to the priest. We assume he did. It would have been foolish for this man not to go to the priest and have himself declared clean, right? That, that would have been foolish for him not to do because that was his entry card back into society. But Mark tells us that he completely disregards, he completely disregards what Jesus tells him about keeping silent. Look at verse 45 as we see the end of the story here. But he went out, the man with leprosy, right, who's now clean, and he began to talk freely about it. Jesus said, hey, don't tell anyone. What's he do? He walks away and he starts telling everyone. (laughs) Jesus said sternly, no, I'm serious. Don't tell anyone. What's he do? He goes out and he tells everybody. He talks freely about it. And he spreads the news so that, and listen, because this is not a good outcome. That's why I've heard people try to explain this away and say, oh, well, actually, Jesus wanted him. No, he didn't. Jesus didn't want him to tell anyone, and here's why. Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people 
were coming to him from every quarter. This is why Jesus told the man to not share about his healing because Jesus' mania was sweeping Israel. The crowd was getting bigger. More and more fans, more and more fanatics. Isn't that a good thing? No, it wasn't. Not for the mission that Jesus came to accomplish. The crowd continues to grow, to grow, but however, the crowd was not understanding his mission. Most people only wanted the miracles, or they wanted a leader, a political Messiah, who would be like another Moses, and just as Moses had led their forefathers out of Egypt, they wanted him to organize them and lead them out of Roman oppression. That's what they wanted, but they weren't listening They weren't listening to his words. They weren't listening to his message. Jesus was looking for true followers, not for fans, not for fanatics. Dr. Daniel Aiken writes, Ironically, Jesus and the leper have traded places. Don't miss that in the text. The leper had been out in barren places and now was brought back in the community. Jesus had been in the community, and because of all the fans and fanatics, he's driven out to barren places. The leper is now on the inside with family and friends. Jesus is on the outside in a lonely and desolate place. This picture of substitution is the very heart of the gospel. It is why Jesus came. He will take on himself our sin, our sorrow, our shame, and in return, he will give us his forgiveness, his holiness, and his righteousness. Praise the Lord. What an exchange. Amen, church? What an exchange. So I just have a couple questions for you this morning based on our passage, and I'll be very brief with these. We'll most likely get done close to on time today. Question number one, is Jesus your rabbi? Are you following a Jesus that fits with your expectations? Or are you following Jesus? Are you following a Jesus that conforms to your will? Or are you following the Jesus of the Bible? Is the Jesus, is Jesus of the Bible your rabbi? Well, how do you know the answer to this? Because that's still kind of esoteric. How can we make this very practical? How do you know if you're following the Jesus of the Bible, if the Jesus of the Bible is your rabbi? I think the answer is very simple, but it requires a lot from us. Do you know the Word of God well? Do you know God's Word well? If you don't know His teaching, the teaching of Christ, then how can you be sure that you are not following a Jesus of your own design? Are you tracking with me, church? If you don't know what he said, what he did, how he responded to situations, and if you haven't done the hard work of working out from the four Gospels to the rest of the New Testament and back through the rest of the Old Testament, if you don't know God's Word well, how can you be certain that you have not created an image of Jesus in your mind who's not actually the Jesus of the Bible? How do you know that he's really your rabbi? And and then the question you have to ask after that is, are you obeying his word? You see, if Jesus is my rabbi, then I will be committed to knowing his word and obeying his word. Also, how important is prayer in your schedule? See, I think it it really comes down to these 
these two core disciplines for us. Dr. Ben Witherington writes, prayer is not for the benefit, benef- prayer is for, excuse me, for the benefit of the one who prays. It is a tool for God to use to better inform us, better direct us, better help us to be conformed to his will. Bible study, prayer. Our denomination has made much of those two spiritual disciplines since we have started in Christianity. And and let me tell you, for good reason, because it's through the study of God's word and through an active, committed, intentional prayer life that we actually get to know the Jesus of the Bible. If Jesus is my rabbi, I am going to be committed to spending time with him in Bible study and prayer, learning to listen and to recognize his voice. Sheep know the voice of their shepherd. It's actually from John's gospel, but I just thought I'd throw it in. Question number two for you this morning, are you playing defense or offense? Are you playing defense or offense? Remember, Jesus did not retreat from the leper in fear. He knew that by lovingly engaging this man, he would be criticized. He knew that his own followers were going to criticize him. Good people would see him as unclean as he broke the traditions and even broke the law. And and we ain't seen nothing yet because throughout Mark's gospel, we will see that Jesus did not take a defensive stance in the face of a world stained by the fall and sin. Jesus plays offense. Is that Hunter Likens over here? You're a quarterback, right? Football? Yeah. Jesus was a quarterback. Jesus played offense. He didn't play defense. Now, if any guys over here play defense, I'm not picking on you. All right. But Jesus played offense. He was light into the darkness, and and, and so should we be. Dr. Mark Strauss writes, the church today, don't, this quote is huge. Think about what he writes here. The church today needs to claim back its authority as salt and light. We should not take a defensive stance, cringing back in fear at society's defiling encroachment on our values and beliefs. Instead, we need to go on the offensive transforming the world through the unconditional and self-sacrificial love of God. Rather than complaining about the world's defilement, we restore it to purity and wholeness by overcoming evil with good. Amen, church? That's the mission of the church. Can I, can I say this in love? With all the love in my heart when I say this, but some Christians spend an incredible amount of time whining and complaining. (laughs) And and often they do it on social media, and it drives the rest of us nuts. (laughs) But some Christians spend so much time whining and complaining. If they took that same amount of energy and time and passion for whatever they're venting about in the world that day and invested it in a positive, God-honoring way in their community, we would all be a lot better off. We wouldn't be subjected to all their whining and complaining, first of all. And also, the community would be so much better because they're taking all that energy and drive 
and they're putting it to use in a positive way that is actually going to create change. Because how many of you know this? Whining and complaining doesn't change anything. We have to get out there, church. This church, I'm talking about us now, this church has to leave this building and get out into the community and start making positive change. Dr. Strauss says here, and, and I agree, that we need to be committed to being the salt and the light that Jesus designed and instructed his church to be in the world. Now, if you're looking for ways how you can do this, the, answer, the answers are limitless. Here's some thoughts. Join the board of a nonprofit organization in the community. Join the board of a Christian ministry that affects change in the community. Join the board, let me push that a little harder, join the board of a secular organization so that you can actually be the voice of Christ into that group. So that when the darkness pushes forward, you can push back with the light, amen? And so join that board of a secular organization. For too long, we have retreated, church. And it got hard out in the world. 50, 60 years ago, things began to shift in the culture, and it started to get difficult. And so what did the evangelical church do? We just came back and retreated to our four walls and said, well, we can't play in the community anymore. Let's just do our own programs here in the church. I think the community is worse off for that. We need to get back out in the community and start making change. Get on a committee, volunteer for a ministry, for some kind of community program, a program that feeds people or clothes people or works with the poor, whatever, whatever your heartbeat is. I'm not telling you what to do specifically, but just do something if you're not already doing that. Get involved at your kid's school. You don't like the direction of what's happening in education? Then, then get involved. Be, be active. Be a voice for Christ. All right, I got to say it, and then I'm done. But I have to say it. COVID has much of the church across the world. This is not just a, as you all know, it's not just a St. Clair County thing. It's not just a Michigan thing. It's not just a United States thing. This is a worldwide thing. And COVID has much of the world, the church, COVID has much of the church playing defense. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be careful. We do need to take care of ourselves, and we've tried to encourage that here. We want people to make their own decisions about whether to come here in person or to view online, and we honor that both ways, and and we do not want anybody to put themselves at risk. But listen, that doesn't mean that we have to play defense as the church. And, and so much of the church around the globe right now is playing defense. Our mission has not changed because of the coronavirus. COVID has not changed the great commission of Jesus Christ. It is tragic and it is sad and it's affected people in other ministries, in other places, and, and here in our own ministry. Loved ones who have died because of this virus. And, and it breaks our hearts, and we do need to be careful, and we do need to try to keep people safe, but we need to go and play offense in the community as the church, because our mission hasn't changed, and the reality is, is that every single 
today, people do die, and they go into a Christless eternity. And that hasn't changed. That's still the reality for so many. This is not a time for Fellowship Baptist or for any other church to be doing as little as possible to maintain ministry. And I hear that. I hear that from other pastors in the community. And I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm really not. But we have to realize that our mission has stayed the same over this past year. And we have to go into the world because people are dying and they're going into the, the eternity, their eternity without Jesus Christ. Church, do we care about that? I know that we do. I know that we do. So let's pray and let's act and let's go into the world and make a difference. Would you bow your heads, please? Let's pray together. Worship team, come on up, and we're going to respond with a song as we close out our worship service this morning. Father God, as we come before you today and we think about this story, and Jesus, we think about the first part. We see how even though you were tired, Lord, you went out early, very early, as Mark writes, and you spent time with the Heavenly Father. And, and, and Lord, that's convicting to so many of us. I know it's convicting to me. I just need to spend more time with you. I need to make that a priority, to be in your word more, to pray more, so that I can be sure that my rabbi is actually the Jesus of the Bible, that I haven't designed you into something else that I think you are, but that I know from the pages of Scripture who you are and what you would say in a certain situation and what you would, how you would act in a certain situation, and that I can have confidence that I'm actually following you, Jesus. And then, Lord, even as we think about the encounter with this man with leprosy, how you didn't retreat in fear, and you even disregarded the laws of man in order to enter this man's world and to drive out the darkness in him and to cast out the sickness so that you would give him a better life on this earth. Lord, help us to have that same kind of passion and drive. Help us as your church to be willing to play offense, even in the midst of everything that's going on in our world, Lord. There's so many different ways we can do that. So this is where, Holy Spirit, we just ask you to speak to us and to reveal to us what you want us to do. Lord, we thank you for your love this morning. We thank you for your grace this morning. Jesus, we thank you for the cross and all that you've accomplished for us today. And we give you praise in your name. Amen. Stand together.